Last week, we wrapped up a series on 1 John entitled The Reality of God, and we'll begin a new series next week called Habits of Grace. But this morning is going to be a standalone message, and it's based upon a passage that God laid upon my heart the last few months. It's a passage that's found in Luke chapter 9, particularly verses 46 through 62. And it's where Jesus confronts his disciples and he gives them a wake-up call. As we get closer to summer and we begin to think about summer trips and summer vacations and it's been a long fall and spring, there comes the time in this season where we might begin to be complacent. We might feel tired. We might feel like we need a boost. And this was a wake-up call for me just as it was for the disciples, and I pray that it's a wake-up call for you this morning as we go to God's Word in Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 62. Hear the Word of God. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, we do not... Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And they were going along the road, and someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it stands forever. Amen. For some of you this morning, for some of you, each morning begins with the sound of an alarm. A sound of an alarm waking you up, a clarion call, allowing you to know that your sleep is over and that the day is about to begin. Luke chapter 9, for the disciples, the passage that we read, is a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call for the people of God. It's a wake-up call for the disciples. All throughout the Bible, God at times needs to wake up His people. His people become complacent. His people become tired. His people become distracted. And throughout the Bible, time and time again, God comes down and He speaks to His people and He 
intervenes with a wake-up call. And this in Luke chapter 9 is a wake-up call for the disciples of Jesus Christ. We sometimes use the phrase wake-up call to describe certain events. If you remember 9-11, which is hard to believe that it's been almost 20 years ago, but if you remember the following days after 9-11, we all said that was a wake-up call for our nation and for our country. A few months ago, I remember talking to a husband that was reconciling with his wife, but it was the moment that the wife walked out the door that the husband said, boy, that was a wake-up call for me. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that the American church has been sleepy. I don't think it's a wake-up call to say that the American church has been complacent and tired, and they need a wake-up call. I love the story of the local Presbyterian minister who was at a gathering and ran into the local Pentecostal minister. And the local Presbyterian minister said, hey, I know who you are. You pastor the church at the, the, down the street, the local Pentecostal church. Because every time I pass by your church, the, the doors are open and I can hear you singing. That place is rocking every Sunday. And the Pentecostal minister said, absolutely, and you can bring your people down anytime and we will wake them up. God Would you wake up Coral Ridge? Would you wake up the people of God here in this place? Luke chapter 9 serves as that wake-up call. What is Jesus waking the disciples up to in Luke chapter 9? Two things that he is waking them up to in this wake-up call in the Gospel of Luke. The first is a redefinition of greatness. Jesus is waking them up to a new definition of what it means to be great. What Jesus says in verses 46 through 48 is that greatness is not being the top dog, but is actually greatness is willing to be the least. We see an argument breaking out here in verse 46 among the disciples. They're arguing who is the greatest? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? And 2,000 years later, we still have that argument. We live in a culture that is consumed with what it means to be great. We have a hunger to be great in our culture. We want to do great things and be great and be seen with great people and be seen doing great things, right? If anybody is on social media, we all portray our lives as being great. Right? Not too often do we post a picture on social media down at the Goodwill. It's always with some celebrity or with some famous person or doing something great and doing something that would make everybody envious of who we are and what we're doing. Right? We have a hunger to be great in our culture. And so when the disciples are arguing who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, is it going to be the person that preaches the most, or has the most, or gives the most, or does the most, or has the most prestige, or sits at the right hand of God the Father? Who will be great in the kingdom of God? What does Jesus do? He redefines greatness for them by pulling aside a little child. He pulls aside a little child, and he says what to them? He says, whoever receives this child, 
they will be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You see, in our culture, that illustration might be a little confusing. We have the little kids on the steps, and we're, we're in all of little kids. We love to see little kids. Little kids are adorable. But in the Eastern culture 2,000 years ago, children not only should be seen and not heard, children should not be seen nor heard. Children were the, the lowest on the totem pole. The children were the lowest of the society. Children were never given any kinds of roles or responsibility. Children were out of sight and out of mind in an Eastern culture. And what Jesus was doing was so profound by pulling the little child He was taking the least of these, and he was saying, if you receive this little one, the one whom our culture and our society has deemed the least, that person will be seen as the greatest. You see, Jesus is redefining greatness in in his culture, and he continues to redefine greatness in our culture. The greatness is not seen in the person who does the most or has the most or is the most popular, but it's the person who's willing to go low. It's the person who's willing to lose everything. It's the person who's willing to serve the least of these. Jesus wants wants them to understand and wants us to understand this morning, it's the one who makes themselves nothing. That person, in the eyes of God, in the eyes of the kingdom of God, is considered the greatest. Who did that? Perfectly. Jesus. Jesus, the King of Heaven, the, the second person of the Trinity, the very Son of God, He came down and who did He associate with? He associated with you. He associated with sinners. He associated with those that are broken and those that are lost. And may we as a church continually ask ourselves, you see, the world says this, use your influence, use your affluence, use your wealth and your position to make your name great. But Jesus in the kingdom of God says, no, use your influence and your affluence and your resources and your position to make someone else great. And ultimately to make the Lord Jesus Christ's name great here on this earth. See the paradigm shift. You don't use what God has been given you to make your name great. You use what God has given you to make his name great. It's a total paradigm shift. So he wakes us up. He wakes us up and wakes us up to a redefinition of greatness. But not only does he do that, he not only redefines greatness for us, but he also redefines the discipleship. He wants them to have a wake-up call to the cost of discipleship. And we see that in verses 57 through 62. What is, where is Jesus going? Jesus is leaving Galilee and he's on his way to Jerusalem to do what? We just celebrated it a few weeks ago. He's on his way to Jerusalem to die. But before he gets to Jerusalem, what does he say? In verses 57 through 62, at the end of the passage, he says, follow me. And immediately somebody responds. And they says, Lord, I'll follow you. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. That's the person you want on your team, right? The person that doesn't even know where they're going, but just says, I'll go, send me, I'll follow you. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say in this passage? He says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He is going to Jerusalem to die. 
And so what Jesus wants them to understand is this is the cost of following me. This is the cost of discipleship. When you follow me, it means you'll be arrested, you'll be mocked, you'll be persecuted, and you might even die. You still want to follow me? He's waking them up to the call to discipleship. See, following me doesn't mean a call to prosperity or a call to ease. Following Jesus means being beaten and persecuted and arrested and ultimately killed. And Jesus says, he's still on board. And then it doesn't stop there. Two more people respond. And they say, I want to follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And what does Jesus say? But the person says, but first, I need to go bury my father. And what does Jesus say? He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. And that seems a little harsh. I mean, it seems like a reasonable request. The guy's father has died. He needs to go home, fix things in the family, have a funeral for his dad, and then he's ready to follow Jesus. That's not what is happening here in this passage. Remember, this is an Eastern culture. And what is happening here is more than likely the father is not yet dead. What the, what the person is ultimately saying is, I need to go home. I need to live my life. And when the day comes for my father to be for my father to die and to have the funeral, then I'll be ready to follow you. But I first have to take care of things at home first. And what Jesus says is, no, the person that comes to follow me, I come first. You don't have to first worry about the affairs of your home or the affairs of your life to follow after Jesus Christ. The call to discipleship is that your fair affairs and your goals and your preferences come secondary. Jesus, I'll follow you, but I first have to follow my career and make a lot of money. Jesus, I'll follow you, but first I'm in this relationship that I know you don't approve of, but it makes me happy and I got to take care of that first. Anytime we have a but first in our response to following Jesus, that's the thing that you ultimately will follow. And Jesus says, no, the cost of discipleship, you need a wake-up call. It's all or nothing You follow after me. You see, Christianity is not a message of self-improvement. Christianity is a message of the kingdom of God coming to earth, and you are no longer the king. Jesus has usurped the throne of your life, and you give your life fully to Jesus as his disciple. It's a great story of a United States Marine, Clay Hunt, who served in two missions. Uh, First, a mission in Afghanistan and a mission in Iraq. And when he came back after his two missions, he was asked, what was the hardest thing about fighting in the war? He said, actually, the hardest thing about fighting in the war was not what happened in Afghanistan or Iraq. The hardest thing was coming home. Because when I came home, we all said we were a nation at war. But nobody was at war. Nobody even knew what we were sacrificing for. No one even knew what was going on and no one cared. We say we're a nation at war, but we are a nation at the mall. He went on to say, we can sing onward Christian soldiers all we want. And I'm on your team, Jesus. But at the end of the day, we're really at the mall. Really sacrificing nothing. How sobering. How sad. Oh, may we as a church see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and be swept away by it. Oh, Jesus, wake us up. But we must ask this question. What ultimately wakes them up? 
You see, the disciples all throughout the Gospels are story after story of men that are cowardly, that reject Jesus, that deny knowing Jesus, that are afraid and scared and run for their lives. And then all of a sudden we see the end of the story of the disciples. They go out willing to lay down their lives for this mission, willing to lay down their lives for the Gospel. What happens? What ultimately wakes up the disciples? To on the one hand be cowardly and on the one hand deny and reject Jesus Christ and the message of Christianity and then all of a sudden wake up and be willing to take this message to the end of the earth. What changed them? What woke them up? Well, the answer is right here in the passage. Verses 51 through 56, it says that they were going from Galilee to Judea and they had to pass through Samaria. And when they get to Samaria, they do what? They reject Jesus and they provide no place for Jesus to sleep, right? And so what do the disciples do to Jesus? They go back to Jesus and what do they say? They say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon these Samaritans? Jesus, we could smoke them right here. They could be toast because they rejected you. And what does Jesus do? Jesus rebukes them. He rebukes them. It's funny that the the two disciples that call down for fire to come down from heaven upon the Samaritans are are James and John, who are known as the sons of thunder, ironically. But Jesus stops them and he rebukes them. Why? The answer is found two chapters later, Luke chapter, three chapters later, Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 50, this is what Jesus says. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it already be kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, what Jesus is trying to say here in Luke chapter 12, just three chapters later, is there's a fire coming down from heaven, but I'm the one that must receive it. When Jesus says, there is a baptism that I must be baptized with, that means the baptism of fire that will rain down on Jesus Christ as he takes on the punishment of your sins and mine. What Jesus wants to make it very clear to his disciples is there's a fire that's coming, the very fire of the judgment of God. But the good news of the gospel for the disciples and the good news of the gospel for us this morning is that when that fire came down from heaven, it was not laid out on the Samaritans, and it was not laid out on us, but the very fire of God was laid upon Jesus Christ. It overwhelmed Jesus. The baptism of fire that Jesus was consumed with changed their lives forever. And it'll change your life forever as well. You see, there is nothing that will wake us up like the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that will wake us up in our lives than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ taking the fire of God that we deserved and taking it upon himself. It changes everything when we are captured by that love and we are captured by that grace. He rebukes them because he says, that fire is not for you. That fire is for me. I was recently reminded of a life that had this wake-up call. Recently reminded of a life that 
was awakened to what truly is great in the eyes of God, recently reminded of a life that was awakened to the cost of discipleship and recently reminded of a life that was awakened to the love and the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. You might recall a few weeks ago we announced that we lost our headmaster emeritus, Ken Wackus, who served this church and served this school faithfully for over 30 years. And a few of us representing the church and the school had an opportunity to attend Ken Wackus's funeral in Lacanto, Florida. And all throughout the service, there was testimony after testimony to the amazing things that Ken Wackus accomplished in his life. From the moment that he left school to pursue a degree in music, multiple degrees in music, to getting married to Ruth and them and their children going off to, to New Guinea to serve as missionaries, to coming back from the mission field after sacrificing so much and studying to receive his Master's of Divinity at Columbia, going off to receive a doctorate at Vanderbilt, coming down here to South Florida and serving this church and to serving the school as headmaster and Sunday school teacher, the story of raising a godly home and a godly marriage and a godly children and godly grandchildren, the testimony after testimony after testimony of a life well lived. It was one of those funerals where you sit back and you start looking through the resume of his life and you start wondering how a man could accomplish so much in just 79 years. But at the very end of the funeral, the pastor stood up and charged the congregation with a word of application. And part of the words of application were written by Ken himself before he died. And the pastor went through every bit of his resume. And he said this, using Ken's words, As a missionary to New Guinea, Papua New Guinea, that gained me no merit with God. Being a pastor for so many years, gained me no merit with God. Being a faithful headmaster for so many years, gained me no merit with God. Being a faithful husband and father and grandfather, gained me no merit with God. I am here standing before God today telling you this, that the only reason I have merit with God is because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the life of a man, the life of an individual that had a wake-up call that had a wake-up call to what this life is really about. And some of us this morning, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. For some of us, we've been following Jesus Christ for 10, 20, 30 years, and you've become complacent in your walk with Jesus. You've forgotten what it means to be captured by the beauty and the glory of Jesus, to rest on the merits of his righteousness and his righteousness alone. And you need to wake up. And there's some in this room this morning that need to wake up for the very first time. That your whole life you thought you were gaining favor in the eyes of the world and gaining favor in the eyes of God by what you do and what you accomplish. And you need to wake up for the very first time this morning. That the only righteousness that will gain you any merit before God is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It was 24 years ago that I walked into this church and I had a wake-up call. And I heard this, that there is a God and that this God loves me 
and that God sent his son Jesus Christ to die in my place and that because of Jesus I could be fully loved and fully forgiven and fully accepted forever and it woke me up and my life has never been the same. Is God waking you up this morning? Maybe for the first time waking you up to his beauty and to the cross of Jesus Christ waking you up to the very words of Jesus when he says, come to me, all ye who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you come to Jesus this morning? Is he waking you up to begin a relationship with him? And may your life forever be changed. Oh God, may you wake us up.